Hello, everybody, and welcome to WISMED On Call, a bi-weekly podcast from the Wisconsin Medical Society that looks at some of the top issues affecting patients and the practice of medicine in Wisconsin. Today is early on Saturday, April 28th. Um, I'm Mark Grappentine, Senior Vice President of Government Relations. Joining me today is Dr. Michael McNett, who serves as an Advocate Aurora Health Department Leader, System Director for Clinical Standards in Pain Management. He's also the chair of the Society's Opioid Task Force, a pain management physician who has been treating chronic pain since 2000 and has been involved in a number of collaborative efforts to help address the opioid crisis in Wisconsin, including drafting the Wisconsin Medical Examining Board's Opioid Prescribing Guideline and developing a number of educational programs for physicians and the community. Dr. McNett, thank you for being here. My pleasure, Mark. So we're part of this um, uh, kind of a small email group that occasionally will it's physicians and people in state government and some some policy leaders and we see things online we see new studies we send them around to each other it's it's a, a really cool thing that I think that that um, we're able to do one of the emails you sent last week was had a subject line called some light in the darkness and I thought that was really cool and it inspired this podcast today talk a little bit about um, what that what what information prompted you to put that email out to us? Well, it was a series of graphs that were actually produced by CNBC. Um, <clears throat> and they show that uh, there's been a dramatic drop in opioid prescribing across the country. What was most interesting is that the drop is even greater for uh, the high dose prescriptions. And I think that's really important. And before I go on, I, I do want to make sure I, I state that I'm not here as an official Aurora, um, uh, Advocate Aurora spokesperson. <laughs> I am here uh, more in my um, uh, Wisconsin Medical Society task force. Well, that's uh, why I'm here, too, so that's so, good. That works out well. I just, I just want to make sure that everybody understands that I'm not Aurora's spokesperson. We got you. Any, anyway, um, I, uh, it, it's, the, the key is that there is really no evidence that opioids are even effective at a perceptible level when they're taken more than two months. Multiple meta-analyses have demonstrated this, and um, they are dramatically toxic. The, at 100 morphine equivalents, uh, which is, you know, in, in medicine, basically we translate all opioids into how much morphine it would take to provide that dose or that much um, pain relief, mm -hmm. much as we translate other currencies into dollars when we talk about things in the United States. So in, in terms of morphine equivalents, when you get to 100 uh, uh, morphine equivalents a day, the annualized overdose and mortality rate is increased 890%. Now, that's astonishing. It, they've taken drugs off the market. Vioxx is a drug that everybody remembers if they've been around long enough. It was remarkably effective for pain. In fact, I still have patients that come in and curse the, the government for uh, taking, or the company for taking it off the market. Um, it was remarkably effective, and yet they took it off the market for a 92% increase in cardiovascular risk. So that means that opioids at 100 morphine equivalents are 10 times as toxic as Vioxx, which was a highly effective drug, um, and morphine and, and opioids in general are not effective uh, perceptibly when taken for longer than two months. And so there's really, when you think about it, um, a treatment which is not a perceptibly effective, yet which is profoundly toxic, there's a term for that. It's called contraindicated. <laughs> so, so I really believe that um, the idea that opioids should be prescribed long term, there's no evidence base to support that. And I think it's had 
doing this has had a dramatic and, and profoundly negative effect on, on America. Um, as it, you know, there's data that shows that just last year, more Americans died of opioids than died in Vietnam, the entire 10 years of Vietnam. And um, now it's been about three times as much cumulatively since the late 90s have died of opioids as died in Vietnam. Uh, and every three weeks, as many Americans die of an opioid overdose as died in 9-11. Think about that. Yeah. How much money have we spent? as a culture on, on the consequences of 9-11. We fought two wars and have spent five tr trillion dollars. Last year, the total government budget for opioids was four billion. And yet every three weeks, as many Americans die of opioids as died in 9-11. I think it really reflects a, a misalignment of priorities mm -hmm. in our society. Um, so. You know, I've been active primarily from the prescriber side of things, trying to help people understand this. And I think I think the reason most doctors use opioids as much as they do is a combination of two factors, maybe three. <laughs> First, very happy propagandizing by the drug companies to, to persuade doctors that they were safe and effective. Um, a lack of understanding of the medical information and research that's shown that they are neither and um, the fact that patients continue to say that they want them. Um, and I think that to a large degree, the reason patients do that is because they are the most rewarding substances known to man. Um, if you think I'm in pain, I need to take this pill, and you take an opioid, what it does is it intensely stimulates you to think I'm in pain, I need to take this pill. But that, ask yourself, why are we giving opioids? We're giving opioids so people won't think they're in pain and need to take a pill, <laughs> and yet opioids uh, directly stimulate the brain to feel exactly the opposite of the effect we're trying to achieve. So it's really, it's really kind of irrational that we use them the way we do. It's an area of medicine that, when you look back at how this all started, and you know, from from a, a little letter to the editor that showed up in a journal that that took a study that was for inpatient hospital use of opioids. It had nothing to do with sending people home, with a script for thirty or forty or a hundred of these opioids, and and the conclusion was that it wasn't addictive. And it got, as you look back on that. Uh, you know, clearly it started the ball rolling to a place where we see the statistics that you just mentioned on the deaths and the addictions. And so, you know, some of the news from last week about the reduction that we have seen, you've been very, um, in your email, you were very adamant that, you know, while these numbers of reductions are good, such as um, we've, we've seen over the last three years in Wisconsin about a quarter reduction in the, in the number of prescriptions being written, that we still have an awful lot of work to do. And that reminds me of another person who's part of this effort, and that's Representative John Nygren, who, yes. who since beginning his hope agenda in the 2013-14 um, legislative session, you know, that's only five years ago when, when we think about this. And all the stuff that happened from about 1990 until you know, 2000, 2010, it, it, it created the population that became addicted that has now manifested into some of these other problems where people are moving to um, you know, fentanyl and heroin and, and things like that. So so talk a little bit about the reduction you've seen that, that these statistics show. And you know this is since just the last three years. What do you think has, has spurred that? Well, I think 
I think people just looking at the news has had a dramatic effect. Um, you know, every day more people are dying of, of overdose um, and addiction. Uh, I think a lot of people have, it's gotten to the point now where it's become so prevalent that most people know a family where somebody has either died or is in the throes of addiction, is stealing money from their parents, is uh, living on the street. A lot of women wind up turning to prostitution to fund their, their, their habits. And these, these are often people who, prior to developing this addiction, were straight-A students, uh, paragons of their community. Um, and, you know, I think it, it turns on... Um, it, it really shines a light on the fact that people kind of have a negative attitude toward people with addiction, that, that they, were, they must have been a bad person mm -hmm. to get addicted. Mm -hmm. um, and the problem is that that's not at all the case. It, it, morality plays a very small role in addiction. Um, it's really a combination of vulnerability, and they think 60% of that's genetic. Mm -hmm. The rest is probably um, either you know, you're you're kind of a risk taker by nature, and you wind up exposing yourself, or or um, carrying emotional burdens, because opioids tend to help that kind of pain too. Mm -hmm. And suddenly lose if you were, let's say, sexually abused when you're a, a young teenager, and you've carried this enormous weight in your heart about that, and then you take a narcotic, and suddenly that feels like it's gone. That's an intensely rewarding experience too. And so, it's it's oftentimes the people who are the most victimized and vulnerable in our society have that added vulnerability to opioids and so they wind up on these medicines and um, they're victims of the it's a side effect of a drug and and so when they're exposed to this drug uh, even with the best of intentions some people who are incredibly vulnerable will find themselves being victimized by a growing urge within themselves that they can't control to take these drugs and then um, they're, they're kind of compelled, even against their will, to seek it out and take it, and it just leads them down a rat hole. And so I think a lot of what's happening now in terms of heroin and fentanyl um, and opioid prescription opioid overdoses, because prescription opioid overdoses are still up there mm -hmm. with, with heroin and, and, and fentanyl, but um, I think it's a result of the maturation of the addiction process that started in some people 15 years ago when they were prescribed an opioid for a, a clear pain problem that the doctor felt that was, you know, had been taught that's what you use. Um, and so what we're seeing now is like the late stage maturation of the addiction that has developed in the last 15 years of this experiment in trying to use opioids. You know, it's, it's interesting because in 2011 opioid prescribing peaked. Um, it was four times what it was before this whole push uh, pri primarily by Purdue Pharmaceuticals, the makers of OxyContin, um, for doctors to prescribe opioids. And so it started in 1996, kind of peaked about uh, 2010, 2011, and it's dropped by a quarter now. But it was four times as much mm -hmm. at that time. Mm -hmm. So dropping by a quarter means we're, we're still three times as high as we were back then. And, you know, th the evidence shows that uh, there is no perceptible benefit from this treatment if you use it for longer than two months. And there there are no good high-quality studies that say that narcotics work. Doctors are just relying on patients telling them they work, but the people that are telling them this oftentimes are people who are victims of this growing urge. And 
and, and it's interesting because if you take 100 people and you expose them to opioids, there is a, um, a distribution of potential for becoming addicted. Some people are extremely high risk. So the first time they get a, a prescription, they're off to the races. Other people are extremely low risk. And so they can take even high dose opioids. And, and as, they get, as their pain goes away, they just stop them. Um, but in 100 people, there might be 90 people who get opioids and just stop them when they get feeling better. There might be eight who stay on them. Now, maybe some of those are actually getting helped by the opioid, although there's no data to support that. It's more, in my mind, it, it's pretty likely that a significant number of those people are like a person that comes home and has two Manhattans after they get off work. And they're not addicted. They don't become an addict. They, they don't increase their use. They take those two Manhattans for the rest of their life and they're fine. And then two people, but but I will say, woe to the person that tells them they can't have those Manhattans. Right. You know, they, they you know those <laughs> Manhattans are very important to them, but they're not addicted, and uh, so they can just continue to use uh, because they like it. And then there are uh, one or two who can't control themselves and are, are will just get worse and worse and worse. And so I think it's really incumbent upon physicians to develop the ability to identify people who are at risk. There are a lot of markers that help us. It's not perfect, but there's a pretty. You can have a pretty good indication if you know how to look and try to avoid using opioids in people who have those high risks. Or if you use them, use opioids that have the lowest potential because different opioids have different effects. And cause you know some opioids really stimulate that reward center. Other opioids are very mild in stimulating it, and so the higher the the risk, the more important it is that we use those low euphoria opioids. So you've been out in the physician and kind of general healthcare community for years now, talking about this and, and explaining the research and the studies. How I was a man crying in the wilderness. Well, well and, and to, to speak to that point, I mean, you really were the tip of the spear on a lot of this effort that's going on right now in Wisconsin, which is held up as a national model on how to collaborate and we can that's a whole other podcast I think that whole effort um, how jarring was it for physicians to hear that for years they had been prescribing something that they thought was being useful and helpful and not potentially harmful in most cases to patients and all of a sudden it they find out that those that have been prescribing may have been or probably have been you know creating this situation what was that cultural feeling like out there in the physician community? Well, the first feeling was outrage at me. <laughs> so really? When I used to give talks, I made sure I wore Did they push back at you? Oh, yeah, it, at first. Um, it, when I first started talking about this, I hadn't really refined my approach. And so I just, I, you know, I have a background in addictions. I worked in a methadone center when I was in residency. I've always been involved in addictions in some way or another. I, I did uh, hypnosis for people to quit smoking, worked in a weight control, uh, an eating disorder clinic. Um, and um, I am a Suboxone prescriber, um, so or buprenorphine prescriber, I guess is the more appropriate term. Uh, but um, it's uh, at first when I started telling people this, I had to make sure I was wearing a waterproof outfit because I had to wipe the tomato juice off myself. Mm -hmm, <laughs> you know, after, mm -hmm. but I um, I finally put together a, a PowerPoint that went systematically went through all of the research and. Um, and as more studies have come out, it's made it more and more compelling uh, how little opioids do for people. In fact, there's even a Cochrane analysis that has shown that um, one 
extra strength Tylenol and one Advil is three times as likely to cut post-op pain in half as a 15 milligram Oxy IR. Um, that's astonishing. You know, and, and when I show that to people, they look, they just look shocked and they have to reinforce. This is Cochrane talking, you know, Co Cochrane, uh, for those not in medicine, Cochrane is um, uh, the definitive authority on treatments. They review all the research on treatments and make recommendations. And when Cochrane says something, it's usually like God handed it down on clay tablets. <laughs> and so, um, so doctors have no choice but to accept it. You know? <laughs> but, uh, and I think, but I think more to your point, as, as doctors started to see these things and, and develop some realization, I think there was some shock. I think, um, I think many of them felt sort of betrayed that they had been taught something that was clearly so contradicted by the medical evidence and we still see it being advocated I you know the American Pain Societies and American Academy of Pain Management are still out there proclaiming that we can't take people off these drugs that they need so much I don't know how they can do that in light of the evidence that's out there and these are supposed to be the experts how is it they don't understand that um, and I think to some degree it makes it hard for doctors to accept on on some really deep visceral level that uh, that they are as that that this data is valid be, because uh, their patients tell them it's not, but unfortunately those patients saying that most loudly are the ones who have uh, are in, at least to some many of those patients are the ones who have this reward phenomenon going on and they may not even be aware of it and so it's hard for patient it's hard for physicians to believe that their patients aren't telling them mm -hmm. you know they. A, a valid truth, even though the patient may believe it because the opioids are rewarding them for believing it. Um, and so you still, still see this lingering expectation that we should, well, maybe we need to be more careful, but we should still be giving them out to people who say they need it. And it's like, well, you know, in my in my practice, I have a pain practice and, and I actually have uh, a, about eight or 10 uh, nurse practitioners and PAs that work for me. And what we find is that if you trust patients and say, okay, we will continue them. We get a lot of people who come in on opioids. Uh, we don't generally start people on chronic opioid therapy. I think it should, I think it should be considered contraindicated, but um, except in end of life care and things mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. but, um, but when people come in and say that they're taking it appropriately and that they need it, we will continue them on it, but we watch them closely. And what we find is that the large majority turn up negative on a drug test or, or turn up with other illicit substances on a drug test eventually and there's an awful lot of, at least my evidence of what I've seen and I've seen an awful lot of patients in, in this practice, is that a large population um, in that group of people who are taking their opioids apparently appropriately, um, sooner or later evidence turns up that shows that many of them aren't. And um, so I think that, I think it's been hard for doctors to accept this. I, you know, and, and I, I really wanna stress, I think doctors were doing this in the best interest of the patients. They really believed they were doing it in the best interest of the patients. They were being told that it was in the best interest of the patients. Studies were selectively sent out to doctors showing that it was in the best interest of the patient. But when you go back and do a complete review of the literature, you find out that there, there were an awful lot of studies out there that weren't being promoted that were showing it wasn't. And in fact, the preponderance, unfortunately. And so I think that, uh, I think that doctors now feel a great need to address the problem that has been created through 
what what was inadvertent prescribing and and a, a problem that was inadvertently uh, resulting from the medicines they had been told they needed to prescribe and you know it was it was funny because even Joint Commission mm -hmm. uh, which accredits hospitals and and at at the time uh, when this was all starting if a hospital didn't if they lost Joint Commission approval um, they would lose the ability to bill insurance so they might as well shut her up and close down right. if, if Joint uh, Commission didn't approve them and Joint Commission was I remember it was like jackboots <laughs> on our necks uh, as a hos hospital organizations to be out there, you know, taking care of this pain. And if right. if a pain pill didn't help, give them a bigger pain pill. And if that didn't help, give them a bigger one. And if that didn't help, give them IV and and uh, do whatever you had to do to get their pain under control. And and uh, it's like we really didn't, to some degree, we didn't really have much of a choice at that time. A lot of I think the public doesn't understand what pain is the fifth vital sign meant to the healthcare community in terms of this really is considered to be as important as checking pulse and temperature and blood pressure and all that kind of stuff. And it, it is such a cultural shift that we've had to see medicine do, and, and not just physicians, but dentists in particular because of the, the high pain stuff that they do sometimes. Um, I've heard anecdotally from physicians that a lot of patients are coming in now saying uh, they start the conversation about about pain management and opioids, sometimes in a positive way. So if someone says, you know, I hear this is really bad, doc. I really don't want to take this. Can you tell me about that? And then the physicians are relieved that they, again, this is anecdotal, but the physicians are relieved that they can have that kind of conversation from that perspective, as opposed to, oh boy, I'm going to have this difficult conversation with someone who wants something and I have to talk them out of it and instead it's the other way. Are you seeing that? Is that is there some evidence that that's more than just anecdotal? Oh yes and and um, you know for a while it was a real problem because uh, you know doctors payments oftentimes are tied to <laughs> patient satisfaction and and right. if a patient comes in and uh, uh, once you know once these opioids you can talk till you're blue in the face. Uh, you know, explain how you know if you stay on these longer than two months, you, the receptor, the, the protein that the opioid attaches to in your pain nerves that makes makes the pain nerve calm down actually switches to do the opposite, and and um, so that's why we don't like to continue these. And and you can go through all of this and then recommend an alternative, and. Um, that patient will walk out and will give you a bad review, no matter how careful you've been and, and thorough you've been in trying to explain otherwise. So it really is, I think, incumbent uh, that patients work with us <laughs> in trying to mm -hmm. change this process. Um, and uh, it's hard to tell a doctor, well, that's great, do the right thing, but lose 5% of your pay for doing it. Um, and so I think it, now that that's changing too. Uh, the Joint Commission no longer um, is uh, using pain as a fifth vital sign effect. But and in fact, they have policies in place to encourage hospital systems to not use opioids, and they are using the same jackboots to ensure that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, or, or at least not excessively use opioids, and that they are careful about it. Um, so I think that I think things are changing. Um, I, I do hear from patients who want. To not be on opioids, and I've seen a dramatic shift in my in the population coming into me. Um, in the last couple of months, only about a quarter of the patients that I've seen as new patients are coming to me on opioids, whereas before about ninety percent were coming to me on opioids. And so it's the you know I'm in the Milwaukee area, and which is kind of where I've had the most. Um, 
I've been out there, you know, shouting the loudest in, in the local area, and so, and it appears that it's really had a dramatic impact. Uh, and it's interesting that one of our friends on the, on the licensing board has told me that uh, uh, they are starting to get an, a rapidly escalating number of, of complaints against doctors for starting patients on opioids. Or, or for giving uh, their son too many opioids, you know, when he, when he had an injury. Um, uh, so you're seeing a growing number of complaints going the other way, whereas bef uh, prior to that, all the complaints were about doctors not giving enough opioids. Um, I, I can tell you I've had a, a lot of complaints about that myself that I've had to answer for. But, uh, you know, as the key is that we're doing it in the patient's best interest. And, and I, you know, unfortunately sometimes the more um, deep the problem in a patient, the, the more vociferous they become when you don't give them the opioid that they're craving and, and it results in complaints like that. And the board understands that though. So that's fascinating. Um, so we're, we're, we're talking about the, the difficulties, but there is some light here. I mean, we're definitely seeing some light. What, what, do you, what do you think the timeline is potentially for, you know, quote unquote, getting out from this, you know, it's the opioid crisis. When is it solved per se, or can it ever be? Or at what point, what, what's the timeline here um, for getting to a point where we feel that we even have it under control, do you think? Well, I think Wisconsin um, is well underway. I think that uh, the process is pretty significantly established. I think, I think it was great that um, Representative Nigren allowed the medical examining board to develop guidelines. Uh, he had to; they were actually banned from doing that for some time, and he wrote the legislation that allowed them to do that. I'm very honored to have been given the opportunity to participate in that. Uh, and then um, the medical examining board mandated that every physician who who has a license to prescribe opioids in Wisconsin must take two hours of education on those guidelines. So this, you know, this year we're going to see a sea change, I think, as a growing number of physicians, you know, every physician in Wisconsin now should understand what the medical evidence is, why these are not the right thing, and uh, there's going to be a growing intolerance of physicians who continue to just give out narcotics like candy. Um, now that they all should know better, they've all been, they can't claim ignorance anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I think over the next several years, you're going to see institutionalization of this, where um, medical health or healthcare organizations are going to start putting in, in place policies about it, um, specific uh, prescribing guidelines uh, or um, prescribing pathways. Mm -hmm for uh, various high um, pain conditions. Uh, we're seeing that in, in Aurora now, that there's a pilot uh, in the emergency rooms to look at uh, low back pain, kidney stones, and migraine. And they have specific prescribing uh, order sets already in place that don't include opioids for those conditions. And what they're finding is patients are getting out feeling much better, far fewer side effects, and um, and without being exposed to the opioids that could, you know, if they're a vulnerable person with migraines, could set off the addiction process. So um, I think over the next two to three years, we're really going to see this become institutionalized. I think there's a critical mass has been reached, and it's going to continue to progress. And organizations will start identifying those, those physicians in their groups that are 
not following this trend, continuing to put patients at risk, and re-educate them. So, uh, the, this, the problem is that goes toward not turning people right, into right. drug addicts. Right, I was going to say, that, that helps stop the supply. You know, you're stopping the supply of, of potential addicts going forward. We still have a lot of people that are yes. um, suffering from that addiction. Um, and what is the need now to make sure that we have those treatment availabilities and things like that? Yes, and, and we are far from meeting that need. And, and I think this is the greatest potential that we have right now. We've, the Addressing the prescribing problem is a process. That locomotive is running down the track. Mm -hmm. um, we, the locomotive for um, getting addressing the problem that has occurred. And you know, I, I want to reemphasize that this is a, a symptom it's a side effect of a medication we've been pro providing. Um, and even the teens who are getting addicted, uh, oftentimes it's because their parents were given, you know, had a, had a medical condition, got a, a large prescription for opioids, took about an eighth of it, and the rest is sitting in the medicine cabinet and winds up in skittle parties. Um, and so I think a lot of teen exposure comes from prescribing habits as well. Uh, Eighty percent of people who die of a heroin overdose started with a prescription medicine. Uh, so this is a side effect of, meta of a treatment we've been providing. I think we have a responsibility to uh, rise to address that and unfortunately up to now uh, that response has, the locomotive has just got its nose out of the, out of the uh, building uh, to start on this and I think that's where we're going to see a lot of efforts directed over the next several years to try to address that. And, um, you know, it's it's going to be a problem because um, it's expensive to do this, and insurance doesn't really pay adequately to incentivize doctors to do it. It would be very helpful if there are greater incentives for doctors to do it. Um, it's possible that the government could play a role in. Um, one thing I'd like to see is training uh, of primary care doctors to become, you know. This is a common adverse effect. You know, it's a fatal one, and so it would be great if medical education included uh, becoming a buprenorphine prescriber. Uh, and I'm hope I'm trying to spearhead that in the state. I'm I'm hoping that we can get the government to provide a grant to compensate the residencies for the cost of doing that. As a it's sort of a not it's not that big of a cost, but it's a nice show of um, uh, how important the government feels this is to. To reimburse it, it's forty dollars a person to train them, and so mm -hmm. for ten thousand dollars, you could you could uh, subsidize every the the training of every primary care and psych resident in the state, and you'd get two hundred and fifty more people uh, added to the roster of physicians who can treat this problem each year. I think that would be that's probably the lowest hurdle. Uh, process to get going in doing this. And this is kind of a critical mass area though too, right? Because there's hesitancy to go through that kind of training to be qualified because the fear then becomes, well, I'm the dumping ground then for everybody that, that uh, everyone's going to say, oh, go to Dr. X because they've got the ability to do this treatment. So it, it's kind of something where everyone needs to jump in or a serious number needs to jump in at the same time to prevent that kind of problem from happening, correct? Isn't that kind of yes. your, your dream here? I, I, I really believe that, and it would be nice to have clinics where doctors you go to do this, which have trained personnel who understand how to deal with the behavioral component of the addiction, because, you know, as I, say, as I said before, it, it, immoral, it doesn't, it's not immoral people who become addicts, but addiction is immoral. And, um, and so behave, people victimized by 
this computer virus in their brain of addiction, that virus causes them to behave in ways that are very challenging to deal with. And so you need people to help that. A single prescriber in a family practice clinic doesn't have that kind of support. Mm -hmm. And so if we can find ways of bringing these prescribers together, then they can share call, for example, because if you're the only prescriber in your group, you're on call for those patients 24-7. And, and doctors are really reluctant to take that. But if you have them clumping together into clinics, uh, I think then they can share call and it, it becomes a much better phenomenon and you can have all kinds of policies and procedures in place. And there's your more light and less darkness, right? Exactly. That is the key. All right. Dr. McNatt, thanks so much for sharing your insight. And, um, you know, you're about to go down the street to the Monona Terrace to talk to a statewide convention of nurse practitioners that want to hear your keynote address on this. Um, here at the Medical Society, we have some of those CME programs that are approved by the Medical Examining Board to help physicians qualify for their uh, two credits of CME. And, and I know we're continuing to work with you, not only on the stuff you've already done, but as the, the science develops and more information that can get to physicians is out there, that we're going to have programs that help with that. And, and we really appreciate um, your work there and taking the time to do that. Well, I'm very grateful for the opportunity. Awesome. Uh, well, this will wrap up uh, this edition of WISMED On Call. If you liked what you heard, and even if you didn't like what you hear, uh, visit our website, www.wisconsinmedicalsociety.org, and look for future episodes wherever you get your podcasts. If you have suggestions or feedback, send an email to communications at wismed.org, and we'll be back in a couple weeks. Thanks for listening.